Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last Sunday we began a quick little series that I'm calling um, The Gospel of the Kingdom. Uh, I couldn't remember. I knew kingdom and gospel, but I was going to get them flip-flopped. My dyslexia was there briefly. And uh, we're taking a look at the Beatitudes for a few weeks. And um, some of you weren't here last week, and uh, those who were probably need a quick review. So we'll just go ahead and review what we looked at last week. And we considered the first three uh, Beatitudes that Jesus shares. And the Beatitudes are found in Matthew chapter 5, and they're at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And next to the Lord's Prayer, which we recited a moment ago, uh, they're probably uh, the most famous, best-known part of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we walked through a few of those things uh, last week, but uh, the question that they wrestle with is, what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom? Uh, who is a citizen of the kingdom? If you remember John chapter 3, in fact, I think I have it on the screen, um, Bele, uh, <laughs> I think it's available. John 3, um, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he asks, uh, how can I uh, be a part of your movement? How can I be a part of uh, what you're doing? And Jesus replies, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. And so the only way you can see the kingdom of God is to be born again. And and the Beatitudes uh, are answering, what does it mean to be born again? What does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom? And the first three are describing uh, uh, who uh, qualifies. Uh, What are the characteristics of of a kingdom person? Uh, And really the first four are describing who qualifies. What does the characteristics of somebody who is in the kingdom, what does that look like? And so today's text that we're going to consider, and it's just one verse, is going to be a good test for you. uh, Because it is going to ask of you, are you in the kingdom? Or are you not in the kingdom? And those of you who are in the kingdom, today's message is going to reassure you. It's going to bring great joy, great peace. You're going to be excited. For those of you who have never thought about it this way or have never heard it this way or or, or this is new to you, you are outside the kingdom. And my prayer and my hope is that you will get inside the kingdom uh, and that's available to you today. But if you haven't considered this, you're outside of the kingdom. And so this is a good test, this passage. Well, last week we looked at uh, what it means to be poor in spirit. And and being poor in spirit is the first qualification, the first characteristic uh, of a person who is in the kingdom. And one of the things that people look at in the the Beatitudes is they think these are eight, eight or nine, depending on how you count them, eight or nine uh, characteristics of eight or nine different people. But they're really eight or nine characteristics of the same person, a kingdom person. And so the first one is to be poor in spirit. And last week I argued that to be poor in spirit is to recognize that your problems are beyond you. To recognize that you're bankrupt. There's nothing you can do to help yourself. And as I was thinking about this, I realized that in America this is not what we are taught, is it? Um, We don't think of ourselves as being poor. And we don't think of ourselves as being poor in spirit. We think we can, with American know-how and American ingenuity and American work ethic, we can get her done, right? Right? Um, in fact, in the church, 
Last week, you might remember, I just tried to dispel uh, a common rumor, a common uh, false teaching, if you will, in the church. And, and the one that I tried to dispel last week was God helps those who help themselves. And I couldn't even find a verse that actually even says anything along those lines. Uh, I think it's in Second Thoughts, but... Um, <laughs> That's not in anywhere in scripture. And this week I wanted to just for a freebie throw in another one that you hear regularly. And that is God will never give you more than you can handle. Um, my grandmother said that on her 93rd birthday as she's sitting in the hospital with bruises all over her body. And I'm like, you're lying, grandma. <laughs> He's giving you more than you can handle. <laughs> in fact, um, that's a misquote of First. Uh, uh, Corinthians ten thirteen. I actually found a verse that it goes with. In fact, it's on the screen here in a moment. And, and, and it says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to us all. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted. See the word there? That's kind of an important word to, to realize what's going on and what they're talking about. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, it's interesting because this is all free. This isn't even the sermon yet, okay? So stay with me. And if, if you need to just veg out, this would be the time to do it. Um, and then I'll call you back when it's not time. We think that temptation is overwhelming. And, oh, I can't, I'm just a man, I can't help it. Or, you know, I'm human, so I just, I'm getting get tempted. And we cop out on temptation, but the scripture says, none of us will be tempted beyond what we can bear. Isn't that weird? And instead, we, instead of we think that we can just, oh, I just have to give in. I can't help myself because I'm fallen. I'm tempted. I'm sinful. And the scriptures actually say the reverse, that you will never be tempted beyond what you can bear. You can stand up to temptation. But this has been shortened uh, and misquoted to God will not give us more than we can handle. But it's interesting because the same guy who wrote 1 Corinthians, he also wrote the book 2 Corinthians, and he said this in that book. Bailey, next slide, thank you. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Far beyond, God gave us more than we could handle, is what he's saying far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. These guys are crushed. I mean, this, they can't handle this. Next slide. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You know, because if you can raise the dead, you can pretty much do anything. And so I just wanted to dispel that really quickly. That was free. You know, your offering did not go towards that part of it. Some of you are thinking, thank God I didn't give, because this is not. Uh, but God does give us more than we can handle. He does. Why? Because we have to rely on him. Because if he didn't give us more than we could handle, we would never rely on him because we would be able to handle it. It's a heresy. It's a false teaching. So if you believe that, stop it. Get it out of there. All right, now, moving on. Poor in spirit, and the reason I brought that up then is because to be poor in spirit has got to be to realize that God gives you more than you can handle, that your problems are beyond your ability to manage, that you can't handle it. You cannot deal with your life. It is too difficult for you to deal with. Women seem to get this 10 years before men do for some reason. It's true. 
Women figure this out before men do. Maybe it's a pride thing, men, I don't know. But uh, women figure out, I can't deal with this. I can't handle this. And men are like, what? I think that's the difference. But anyways, <laughs> at least at my house, right? So being poor in spirit is realizing that our problems are too big for us to handle. We cannot do anything about them. And, and, and that brings us to a place of mourning, right? Bummer. I can't handle my problems. I can't deal with my life. I'm not able to fix myself. I can't fix myself. I can't fix my wife. I can't fix my kids. I can't fix my finances. There's lots of things in my life I can't fix. It's beyond my fixing. And that leads to a morning. Not like Monday morning, although it can feel like Monday morning, right, when we realize that stuff. A morning with a you. And it leads us to grieve this, but, but we also have to grieve the spirit part. Because it's easy to look at relational problems and feel overwhelmed. It's easy to look at financial problems and feel overwhelmed. It's easy to look at emotional problems and feel overwhelmed. Physical problems and feel overwhelmed. But the big, huge problem is spiritual. That's the big problem all of us have. I mean, all those other things are like symptoms of the problem. You have physical problems because... There's a sin problem in the world. You have relational problems because there's a sin problem in the world. You have emotional problems because there's a sin problem in the world. You have financial problems because there's a sin problem in the world. Like when you go to the doctor and you complain about a problem, pain typically is what we go to the doctor about. Like my knee, when I do squats and stuff, they talk. They squawk. They go, you know, and so far I haven't found WD-40 or nothing for them. And I go, and sometimes I get pain because it swells. And I don't know what causes that. Well, now I do, but then I didn't. And I go to the doctor, and I say, there's a pain in my knee. And if the doctor just says, well, here, take this, and it makes the pain go away, but my knee is still swollen, have we dealt with the problem? We've dealt with the pain, but we haven't dealt with the problem. And the same thing is true with sin. Sin is the root problem. And you can address some of the symptoms. You can get healthier relationships somehow. You can deal with your finances. You can do some of that stuff. But you haven't dealt with the deep problem. And that's what mourning, that your problems are beyond you. In fact, as G.K. Chesterton said, the problem with the universe is me. Not just me, you too. Okay? I mean, put yourself in at the me part there. The problem with the universe is me. And these two realities can lead us to despair, can't it? I mean, it can totally just drive us to despair. That I'm a sinner, that I am, uh, my life is miserable, it's beyond my fixing. I can't help myself, and God doesn't help me either. I mean, this could lead us to despair. By the way, he does help you, but I'm digressing. And then that leads us to meek, to humility. Because we could either despair of these things or we could turn to God in humility and cry out for help. And that's what blessed are those who are meek means. And you've got to take them in their order. You've got to take them in their log- logical order. And that's where we ended last week's sermon. And it took me a whole like 35, 40 minutes to get there. Okay, and I just did it in how many minutes? And you're thinking, speed this up. Um, today, we're going to look at the next one, the fourth one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger. It should be up on the screen. It would be so cool if it was just seamless and stuff, but no. Bailey. <laughs> My poor kids. Nope, that's not it either. 
And that's another problem that we're going to talk about in a moment. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, it's interesting because we all don't understand righteousness. And, and we also don't understand hunger and thirsting in America, right? I mean, there's a couple things in America we don't understand much about at all. One would be going hungry and going thirsty, right? Do I look hungry to you? I feel a little parched, but that's because I'm talking. None of us have probably ever been just desperately hungry. I mean, where it's like we don't know where our next meal's coming from, and, and, and we're losing strength, and we're malnourished, and we're starving. None of us probably have experienced that. In fact, Ray is the most out-to-eat group of folk I ever have seen in my life. I mean, we, we, can, we, we can keep restaurants open like nobody. It's amazing. There are so many restaurants in this town. And many of you go to the restaurants regularly. And I love the restaurants. I enjoy eating out. I enjoy eating, period, right? I don't like hungering. I don't like being thirsty, but I like to eat. We all do. That's how we keep these restaurants open. And America has not a problem with being hungry. I mean, we have obesity issues, right? We have people who eat too much. This is, this is, this is America's plight. But Jesus, his hearers, would have understood this because in Palestine, they were under a recession. Depression. Things were really bad. In fact, do you remember a couple of his big miracles where we're feeding out, feeding, feeding out, feeding people fish and bread, giving folks a lot of free food? That was significant because for you and I, it'd be like, oh, cool, free meal. It's like going down to Ace uh, when they have hot dogs. And you're like, hey, free food. I mean, I didn't eat it, but I got free food, so I feel even better. It, it tastes great. That was the best hot dog I've had in a long time because it was free. In Jesus' day, it was like, wow, we actually ate today. And so when he says, those who hunger and thirst, their ears would perk up because they'd be like, that's me. I haven't eaten in a couple days. I'm starving here. I was hoping he would start handing out the food again today because that's what I heard about last time. But now he's just talking to us. I hope the meal's coming soon. They would have understood this hunger and thirst. And when you hunger and thirst, you are hungering and thirsting for something that you don't have. Right? Right? I mean, when you have the food, you eat the food. You don't hunger and thirst for it. You just eat it. But when you're hungry for it, it means you don't have it. And so Jesus is saying, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Well, I I think it's best in the scriptures to understand righteousness as being approved of. Of being in right relationship with somebody. Of being accepted. That's interesting. Everybody has a righteousness issue going on. We all want to be approved of. We all want to be accepted. Think about these scenarios. You have a big job interview for the job of your dreams. And you go in and you talk to the owner of the business. Uh, You are desperately wanting to have a second date with that special somebody. Or you're going in for an audition for uh, a music scholarship or, or, or you're going for an interview for an opportunity to go to that school or to get into that program. 
I mean, all of these have in common that you are anxious and you're nervous, but you're also awaiting a verdict, right? You are waiting to hear from the person across the table, hey, this is the best resume I've ever seen, welcome. Or you are in, that was a fantastic audition, or that you just answered those questions, great. Or from that special somebody, yeah, I'll go out with you again. We're waiting for the verdict. We're waiting to hear an acceptance or an approval from them. And we all have that in us. We all have a desire to be in right relationship with other people. And I believe that this all stems from the deeper issue, that we all have a desire, whether we recognize it or not, whether we are honest about it or not, whether we really know it or not, we all have a desire to be right with God. We all have a desire to be accepted by God, to be approved of by God. But there's this verse that I already showed on the screen. It said, Romans 3, that said, uh, no one is righteous. No, not one. Nobody is righteous. No one is accepted or approved of by God. In fact, God is angry and displeased with you and with me. Oh, dear. One of those preachers. Angry God. I heard about Jonathan Edwards. I had to read his book in English literature, and it was all about sinners in the hands of an angry God. And you're going to go there. I mean, how old-fashioned and how old-school. I mean, what about God is love? Now, this is really important. If you've zoned out, you need to come back. This is a really important part. God is angry because God is a God of love. God is angry because he is love. My guess is many of you have lived with or loved somebody who is dysfunctional. Anybody? Nobody? How many of you are liars? Anyone? You're dysfunctional. See what's going on there? All of us have lived with somebody who's a little, you know, messed up, right? And we get married to some of those people, right? And then we have kids, and we go, how did this happen to them? And we blame each other. Well, they're taking after you. Now they're taking after you. It's, your, it's weird Uncle Harry. That's where they got this. And we're all a little off. And we live with people who are a little off. And we all know somebody who's a little dysfunctional, a little crazy, and they do things weird. And, and sometimes it's not just weird. It, it gets into, that was wrong. That was evil. You kind of added a <laughs> at the end of what you just did to me. What was that? You know, I mean, you've been there. You've, you've maybe have done that. And, and we all know that there are, there, there's the evil in us or there's that, there's just a little off in us and there's, in, there's that in people we love. And my experience is when we see that in somebody we love, we get angry. Right? I mean, with your children, When you see evil taking residence in them, not the video game, but, you know, the actual evil. When you see that taking residence in them and you're like, oh, you get angry. Anger is not the opposite of love. Not not even close. The opposite of love is indifference. You don't get angry about how Canada has changed these last 30 years, do you? Huh? Huh? You get angry about how America has changed these last 30 years because you love America, because you care, 
Because you have a you have a stake and interest. But Canada, I don't care. They can do whatever they want. It's Canada. You're indifferent. But when you love something, you get angry about it when it is changing based on evil or dysfunction or it's broken. And if we are that way, just imagine a holy, righteous, perfect God when he encounters evil and dysfunction and goo in you and in me. His love motivates him to be angry at the sin and the evil in us. I came across a great quote by a guy named E.H. Gifford. I don't even know who he is. But he said something really profound. He says this, the more a man loves his son, this is free, this is like a preview of Father's Day, because that's next week, the more a man loves his son, the more he hates in his son the liar, the drunkard, or the traitor. I mean, that's profound. Listen to that again. The more a man loves his son, the more he hates in his son the liar, or the drunkard, or the traitor. The more God loves you, the more he hates in you the liar, the drunkard, the traitor, the evil, the ugh, the filth, the nasty, the sin. God loves you, but he's angry and he's displeased because of sin in us. It's because he loves you. And so we all know I mean, don't you know at some core level that God, you're not right with him? I mean, don't you know that at some core level? I do. We all know that at some core level. And Jesus says, blessed are you when you know that. Isn't that interesting? Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you when you go it's not the way it's supposed to be. I am so hungry and thirsty for things to be made right between me and God. And Jesus says, that's when you're blessed. Now, he's basically saying, we need to be consumed with our desire for God's righteousness, for right relationship with God, for God's approval, for God's acceptance. That's just something that should consume us. But the weird thing is, if you're anything like me, it doesn't consume you. I mean, it does for a brief moment after a preacher gets up and says things, but then, then the sermon ends. <laughs> and usually what consumes me and my heart is happiness. I want to be happy. In fact, uh, another way to translate the word blessed, although I don't think it's the best way to translate, is, is happy. And, and this, is the, this is the catch that we get into in our country where we, and I think it's just part of the human condition that we all get this backwards. We think happy are those who seek happiness. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for happiness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness. But that's not at all what Jesus says. In fact, C.S. Lewis said it really well. If you aim for heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you'll get neither. You see, when you seek happiness above all else, whatever you are seeking will destroy you and you will destroy it. <laughs> I mean, haven't you seen all those people that win the lottery? 
they win the lottery. And just a few years later, their life is miserable. They're broke. They're, 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 and you're thinking, oh, but if it was me, <laughs> they're just stupid. I'm, I'm smarter than them. I mean, I'm thinking it too, right? But think about it. Now you don't even have the hope of winning the lottery to make your life better because you already won the lottery to make your life better and it's not any better. That's a bummer, right? Because at least the rest of us have hope that we win the lottery. Whatever we place our hope in, whatever we place our happiness in, whatever we are hoping to make us happy according to the scriptures, according to Jesus, it will destroy us and it will be destroyed by us. The only thing that will fill us said it right here. We hunger and thirst for righteousness, right relationship with God. In fact, let me take a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's wife. She said, happiness isn't a goal, it's a byproduct. Mm-hmm. Happiness is a byproduct of righteousness. Happiness, blessedness, is a byproduct of being in right relationship with God. Do you know how many byproducts are in this room right now? I ain't talking about you. I'm talking about stuff in here. A barrel of oil is 42 gallons. Do you know how much gasoline we get from 42 gallons of oil? 19 and a half gallons of gas. What do you do with the rest of it? For a long time, they didn't know what to do with it. And then smart people... We're like, hey, we can do stuff with this. And so they started making plastic. And they started making rubber. And they, they started to, to make those things that they put into almost everything in our lives. There's petroleum products in these chairs, in this carpet, in the paint, in these walls. There's petroleum products everywhere in this building. They're all over. They're in your clothes. They're all over the place. And it's a byproduct. That's not why we are after oil. We need oil so we can have some clothes. Well, man had clothing long before he found out what to do with oil. We want oil because we want to drive our vehicles. And they figured out a byproduct. You know, they did this with the chicken, too. Did you know that they did this with the chicken? How many feet does a chicken have? There we go. Thank you. That is a confident young man. Two. How many chicken feet have you eaten in your life? Anybody eat two? Do you know who eats chicken feet? Chinese people. Do you know what keeps the chicken industry afloat and going in America? I am dead serious. Talk to somebody from Purdue. Chicken. And they will tell you the reason we are still open is because 20 years ago, we started selling feet chicken paws to China. In fact, the, we export 300,000 chicken feet to China every single year. And the demand for chicken feet in China is greater than the demand for chicken in America. They could actually grow more chickens, but then they'd have all this byproduct, you know, chicken wings and chicken legs and chicken breasts. They wouldn't have enough people to buy that stuff because the Chinese want the feet. Weird, huh? It's a byproduct. Happiness works like chicken feet. 
It's a byproduct of righteousness. You will never forget that. It is. It's a byproduct of being approved of, of being accepted, of being, of being loved, of being seen right with God. Happiness is a byproduct. That's what Jesus says in this passage right here. If you seek righteousness, right relationship with all you've got, it consumes you. It becomes who, what drives you and motivates you. Jesus says you will be filled. You will be. You want to feel full? You want to be happy? You want to have a good life? Jesus has given you a promise and says the way to the good life, the way to feel full, the way to happiness is to seek God's righteousness. To seek relationship with God. That's the way to it. And some of you have found that out. And some of you have experienced that. And some of you, if I give you the microphone, will be able to testify, yes, this is true, do it. And some of you are going, I don't believe it. There's no way. There's no way. be willing to try it? Would you be willing? (laughs) Because what you're doing now is working so well, right? I mean, seeking happiness is working so well. I mean, think about it. It ebbs and flows with so many things. Happiness ebbs and flows with, you know, how well our relationship's going with so-and-so, how good we feel, and how yummy that dessert was, and, and, and how fat our checking account is. And how well behaved our kids are. And how good our health is. I mean, it just ebbs and flows. It's all over the place. The kingdom of God is rock solid. You see, God's love, God's acceptance, God's approval of you through the person of Jesus Christ will outlast the stars. It will. It will always be there for you. Last Sunday, I got to see this a little bit because my grandmother, who does believe a few wrong things, and we're going to edit that out of the podcast, we, and I love her to death, she's 93 years old, we went and celebrated her birthday in the hospital because she fell, and we prayed with her, and my grandmother's ready to go see Jesus, and we prayed, my, I prayed, Marnie prayed, Sam, Bailey, Davey, we each prayed, and grandma prayed. It was just, it was, it was awesome. And it's so fun to pray with somebody like her who knows Christ and has for a long time. In fact, she didn't come to Jesus until she was an adult. And she loves Christ. And she's ready to go meet Jesus. And she knows that the kingdom of heaven is worth everything. She understands that God's love for her through the person of Jesus will outlast her life on planet earth. It will. And there is no ebb and flow in that relationship. There is no ebb and flow with God's love for her because God is the one. God is the one who secures it. God is the one through the person of Christ who secures it. You know the difference between a religious person and a Christian? There's a big difference. There's a huge difference between a religious person, a moral person, and a Christian. A moral person, a Christian, or a moral or a religious person, they look Uh, very similar to a Christian on the outside. They go to church and and they say many of the right things uh, and and they, they, they do religious things, you know. They take communion and they, they give. 
But there's a smugness to a religious person. Like when you go to them with their problems, when you go to a religious or moral person with your problems, the, the, the message you get from them is, well, you just need to straighten up. And the way that they say it or the way they look at you when they say it, it's implied like me. Like the way I've straightened up. Now, a Christian, if you encounter a Christian, a person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, they're a vastly different creature than a moral or religious person. I mean, they look similar. They go to church on Sunday mornings and they give and they pray and they read the Bible. They do some religious stuff. But when you go to a Christian with your problems, you encounter a person who loves Jesus Christ, who hates sin who won't tolerate sin in your life or in their life, who's seeking and pursuing holiness, but they'll listen to you. And and they'll say, ah, I know. I know what you mean. Because the big difference, and listen, this is important, the big difference between a religious person and a Christian person is that the Christian has repented of their righteousness. A moral religious person goes, yeah, I believe that Jesus died for my sin and I've trusted Jesus to die for my sin and I believe that he's done that but look at how good I am I go to church and I'm faithful to my spouse and I give and look at all the good things I do and a Christian a follower of Jesus does not count any of that they repent of all of that and they recognize it's only through the person of Jesus Christ it's only by hungering and thirsting for righteousness that I am filled and not my righteousness I hunger and thirst for it. And if it's my righteousness, I already got it. I hunger and thirst for a righteousness that's other, that's beyond me, that's not mine, that's inattainable, unless it's given to me. In fact, Jesus does this really cool thing in Greek. I'm going to totally bore you here, but it's really important. It's not going to bore you. You need to listen. This is great. He uses a genitive case. Ooh, neat, fascinating, interesting. He uses the genitive case when he wants to say something like, give me a piece of cake. The genitive case in English is when you add the word of, right? So I want a piece of cake. You're saying, I want some cake, right? I mean, there's this huge cake in front of you. It's not saying, I want the whole cake. Give me the whole cake. You're saying, I want some cake. I want some of that cake, right? You follow me? This is an English lesson. I know, I'm really sorry. We have to do this. Jesus in this passage isn't saying, give me some righteousness. He's saying in the accusative case, it's like a greedy little kid who's hungry and thirsty and he sees the cake and he says, give me cake. Whole thing, man. So Jesus is saying, that's what a hungry and thirsty person for righteousness says. I don't want just some righteousness. Overwhelm me with right, make me sick with righteousness. Fill me up, man. Just keep it coming. Like me at a barbecue buffet place, right? It's like, oh, why do I do this to myself? Right? But that's what the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that's the picture Jesus is giving us right here. I want it all. I want God's righteousness, and I'm not going to stop until the sin in me is dead and it's gone, and I don't tolerate any of it anymore. Puritans were a bunch of depressed, mean people. They were smart. I don't even know if they were mean or depressed. I don't know any of them because they've been dead a long time ago. 
But they wrote books with really mean, terribly depressing titles like The Mortification of Sin. What? Richard Baxter was a Puritan preacher, and he wrote this intriguing book called The Mortification of Sin. It would never make a bestseller on Amazon, right? I mean, half of us can't even spell mortification. Most of us don't know what it is. Why would we read a book, mortification? Sounds like the morgue. The morgue has something to do with that? Yeah. It might sell better today if he were to call it the death of sin, but he called it the mortification of sin because the mortification of sin is far more mortifying than just death of sin. I'm having so much fun with my turn of phrases. I don't know if you like And the idea is that you just, you crucify sin in your life. And this book describes how to crucify sin in your life, how to mortify sin in your life, how to destroy sin in your life. And that's what a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is like. They want sin destroyed. The fact that they like sin, the fact that they entertain sin, the fact that sin is something that tempts them, bugs them. Does your temptations bug you? Or do you play with them? Do you kind of have those temptations? You're like, "Ah, I know that shouldn't be part of my life, but (laughs) my secret little... Do you have anything like that? Secret little pleasures that you indulge someone in? It's chocolate, you know, but that's a little different than that. You see, righteousness, hungering and thirsting says, enough. I want righteousness all the time, everywhere, in me. And I will mortify, I will crucify, I will destroy with the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. This sin must die. Those are the people who are filled. Those are the people who are in the kingdom. If you have never thought about it that way before... If the way you've thought about these things is being religious and going through the right motions and being at the right place at the right time and looking a certain way and, well, I don't have any problems, you're not in the kingdom. But if you have thought, deep down inside me, there is vulgarity and nasty and ugly and evil and God hates it in me. And I hate it too. And you're in the kingdom. Christ has saved your soul. He is making you righteous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you do love us. That you love us so much that you sent Jesus Christ to die in our place because you knew that we would never have righteousness. You knew we would never measure up, we'd never have good relationship with you, that going to church and giving a little bit and reading the Bible and praying and doing some things and going through these motions, it's never going to make us right with you. And you knew that the beginning of sin is man substituting himself for God. But the beginning of salvation is God substituting himself for man. We thank you that you sent Christ as a substitute for us. When I pray in each of these people, Lord, that you would ignite in them a heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that won't give up, that will always pursue it, 
that will never be satisfied until they have it and have all of it. That fire insurance doesn't count. That we want you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. More than that, may he give you, may he impart in you the righteousness of Christ, which you want desperately.